0: Battleline Podcast, I'm Ian Scotto. I'm Tonto, Chris Peranto, And uh, we we are both back from sunny Florida, which we'll get into. But for the new listeners, um, yeah, every week we try to interview different inspirational figures, whether they're special operations veterans or military contractors, musicians, actors. In this case, um, war correspondents. Uh, and we're really excited to have Holly McKay on for this show. But uh, before we get into everything... CBD is becoming more and more popular, and people are uh, you know, trying to figure out what's the best brand to go with because there's so much out there, the market is so saturated, and that's really where NED comes in. They produce the highest quality, full-spectrum CBD extracted from organically grown hemp plants, all sourced from an independent farm in Paonia, Colorado. NED is a wellness brand offering science-backed and nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. And we also can't speak more highly of their Immunity Blend and their new Mellow product because magnesium is really essential in uh, recovery and muscle building, and uh, people are loving it. And I know a lot of our listeners have checked out Mellow. Yeah, I'll be honest, I haven't tried it
1: yet, even though they've given me a couple samples. Um, So I'll be honest with you, the, the CBD oil and the Immunity Blend they have me feeling so great. I don't know if I want to mess with it right now or mess up the mess up the combination that I've yeah, got. Yeah, no, I don't
0: it. I don't like to overdo it on supplements yeah. either. I'll usually just try one at a time and and then that way you could really um you could really see if it's making a difference.
1: Yeah, and I recommend that. I give it a shot. I will soon, but man, the the, the other products that I, I use, the CBD oil, the the body butter and, and definitely the immunity blend have really made my life much better it's a great great combination of stuff along with other things to keep your body healthy that that i recommend everybody should try especially um, if you're taking prescription pills um you know um, take take the natural stuff and 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 get yourself off those prescription pills like i used to be on uh when i was going through my highs and lows of depression it's it's made a world of difference in my life and i'm and i'm healthy extremely healthy right now
0: Yeah, if you're suffering from anxiety, sleeplessness, any of that, um, Ned has really got you covered. Their their CBD products do contain a minuscule amount of THC, but it will not get you high, nothing like that. So if you want to check out Ned and try their CBD for yourself, we have a special offer for the podcast audience. Go to helloned.com slash battleline or enter battleline at checkout for 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order plus free shipping That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash Battleline to get 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order plus free shipping. Thank you, Ned. We have the link to all that in the description as well in case you're driving around and want to click on it later. So, uh, you know, be safe out there and just remember to check them out after you're done with the show or or right now if you can. Um, Also, this episode is sponsored by Hero Soap Company. HeroSoapCompany.com. No chemicals, dyes, or fragrances, no parabens that are found in common soaps that link to breast cancer and reproductive complications in men, which ever since learning that, I sometimes look at soap just in the grocery store or CBS, and almost all of them have parabens. And knowing that, I'm glad that I've you know stuck with Hero Soap. They just launched a new organic fragrance-free pet wash for your furry friends. Also, they have new scents in their body wash. They have lavender, the pines, the meadow. Lime, and the Arctic, they all include natural ingredients that your skin craves to stay hydrated, like olive oil, essential oils, and aloe vera. They're veteran-owned by our friend Lucas, uh, focused on veteran charities, which include the charity Chris founded 14th Hour Foundation, who they donate to regularly. Um, And for all subscription purchases on soap, they match that amount of soap and send it overseas to a deployed location. Their subscription is shipped straight to your door every month. So no worry of running out. Dudes always run out of their products before buying new or more. No contract with the subscription. You can cancel at any time. Let Freedom Clean. I love their stuff. I love all the different scents. Uh, you know, I just the soap. I love the charcoal. Oh, they have so many yeah. different scents. You'll want to try them all once you start trying some of them or do the subscription subscri- subscription
1: subscription and and if uh and for all you veterans out there or guys that are serving when you smell the different it, it does bring you back to those days of pine oil and and being out in fort benning in the woods in the dirt but it's it's a good feeling that you get back i'm, I'm actually have the wood uh, is it woodlands the woods in my i'm using right now and um smells like Fort Benning all over again, and it's fantastic, guys, and, and it does does condition your skin, works very, very well, and that's the only soap I use. And, and, and uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've i still got two bars left before I get my next uh, five bars uh, down the road, which is fantastic soap. Give them a try, and and Lucas is a tremendous
0: individual as well. Kick ass. Yeah, check them out. HeroSoapCompany.com. Offer code BATTLEWINE for 15% off. And you can combine that with the 10% off for your subscription on the hard soap, not the body wash. So check it out. Uh, With that, let's get into everything.
2: From Omaha, Nebraska, to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peronto,
1: Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face.
2: Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into The Battle Line Podcast.
0: switches on battle line podcast and uh as i said both of us i just got back from florida you got back from florida a few days ago and uh i had a great time i mean i i love the state i i love south florida uh but i was not where you were we didn't cross paths so yeah
1: i was i was up near uh near near deland which is where stetson university is actually stetson's a really cool little Whole, whole I should say hole in the wall, but it's, it's an unknown little gem there. And, in and the, in really it's central Florida is where it is. And, uh, no, I, I love it. I go going out to Florida cause I can get up at seven in the morning and just throw on a pair of shorts and, and, and a shirt and go running. I, it's just, you, you, get out there and that sun just makes you happy. And I was just coming from Nebraska where we had minus 18, minus 19 temperatures. So it was great to thaw out and it was a fantastic training out there. I was doing a battle line tactical my training company had a uh, stress fire course out there at Deep Woods, USA, where Rich Graham has his range, and it was uh, it was it, it made just the the brightness come back in my life. Not just the course, but just being out in the sun. You know, seventy degrees in February, very low humidity. It's no wonder people want to be snowbirds. I'm I'm at, I'm almost fifty next week, so I think I'm going to become a snowbird myself. Definitely, definitely get away from the snow during the winter time.
0: At some point, because you, as far as I know, I don't know what you've said, but you're moving somewhere else that is not Uh, That is,
1: uh, yeah, we'll be Florida, but we will definitely uh, look for a place. And my my family, my wife and I have been scoping out places for uh, condos to have in Florida. I love Florida. Tremendous. It's just, I can't get my kids to, they've grown up in the cold and they've grown up in seasons And we've been in it. You know, we go there in the summertime. My kids hate the humidity, and this, and you know, I'm a dad, and I do care what my kids want to do. But the eight minus 18, I've had it. So we're moving farther south. But no, we are getting a a condo in that area, whether it be Destin or Deland or or Naples, Florida, somewhere within there. I love Naples. I think Naples has the most beautiful sunsets in the world. They're incredible. So. That's where I'd like to go, but um, family votes too. so I, I, my vote counts sure. about that much. <laughs> yeah, which is, which if you're seeing us guys, it's about an inch. That's how my vote counts. But uh, yeah, I hope I, I know you're looking at moving down there too somewhere. Uh,
0: so I was. I'll give you the update, man. I oh no, I was. There. <laughs> I had a great time there. Um, I looked at places. I mean, and what you get for your money there is amazing. Uh, and I was very much convinced I was going to do it. And I was actually having a great time there, and I'll be completely candid. The day after, I got very depressed thinking about, um, thinking about honestly, being away from family and friends that far away. I am not someone who likes to get on a plane all the time. And I was just thinking, um, it'd probably be very rare that I would go and see my parents. It'd probably be two or three times a year, which for me is just not a lot. Um, you know, I'm their only son. I, I have a great relationship with them, which which means a lot to me great relationship with my friends, many of which I grew up with who live around here. Um, so I just ended up thinking to myself, I mean, what's more important? Like the climate and all that stuff, or or people you love. I mean, to me, that's that's really what's more important. So I'm gonna be moving. I mean, I I'm looking at like Connecticut, but I just can't, I can't bring myself to move that far. I I even think of when I get into funks and stuff like that, man. There's no one who I could just drive to and 3 a.m. and be like, I'm, uh, I'm having a tough time, and and it happens, man. I, I'll be the first to say it happens now and again.
1: Well, and you got time, dude. You, you got plenty of time. You got a lot of life, so it's not a decision that if you make this, oh, I'm going to Connecticut or I'm going to stay in New York, that ten years down the line you can't change your mind and still be fine with it. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's the way life is. You know, you make a decision, but, um, yeah, you go with what you need to do now, and and if that changes ten years, eleven years down the line, okay, well, it changes. And that's the beauty of, of, of being successful like you are is that you're going to continue to be successful, which allows you to have options. So you do have those options. And I think that's yeah, the way it,
0: it is awesome having those <laughs> options. And it's like, I love it there. If, if everybody, <laughs> the people that I knew lived around there, but it, I just thought of the fact that, I don't know, going out everywhere on your own and all that gets old and yeah, you'll make new friends, but that stuff happens organically. I mean, I consider you a good friend and yeah. I didn't, you know, uh, I, I didn't yeah. have some plan of like meeting a yeah. guy who was in the Benghazi attacks. <laughs> like we just connected, and that's that's how life goes. And and sometimes you make those connections, sometimes you don't. And I I, I could see it getting very lonely as much as I love it there.
1: I well, say that's the thing; it's just not the right time. Timing is everything. Whether it's in relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's business, anything, timing is really what makes things successful or not. And if you force stuff, it's like the old adage trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work. And if that's what it feels like, then then you just don't do it. But you don't look at it like, oh my gosh, this is my only window. I'm never going to have this window again. That's when people feel bad on decisions and they always feel bad on whatever decision they make because they think that's the only decision they're ever going to make. And that's the only opportunity they're ever going to have. And that's not correct. It's like, okay, well, what's the best for me right now? That's my decision. Okay. There's options down the road. So if I change my mind, I can do that. But being successful and having a positive mindset is how you're able to keep those options open, which you are. So it's like, yeah, you make the decision to stay the East Coast. It doesn't mean that you may not consider Florida down the line. Maybe when you have a family and or or you have friends down there or Texas or I mean, who knows? You may want to go to Salt Lake City, Utah. Who knows that?
0: But those Utah's options are beautiful.
1: It is beautiful. It's just the winners again. Awful. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. Um, I, and I also just think, uh, I mean, I really felt this. I mean, God gives you that intuition of this is the right move or this is not. So even though I was feeling down, I realized like God kind of put that into my heart for a reason. Do you really want to do this? Do you really think this is the best decision? And yeah, you can't force things, man.
1: Always pray on it too. Yeah. That's it. And that's, yeah. that's, that's it. Hey, if you, I'm not sure, pray on it and then be open to those signs or answers or whatever, however you want to. Call it. Um, I do the same thing. Um, I know Florida is where I want to be at least during the winter time, and that's oh, because yeah. and, and family. My, my wife loves it too, and, and and it's we we've I've done a lot of stuff down there as far as speaking and training and friendships and so forth. So, uh, and actually, I'm heading back down there to do a book signing at the Alamo in Naples on on March. I believe it's their anniversary. And Alamo is a huge range in Naples, Florida. Um, yeah, yeah I think of Texas when I think of Alamo. Yeah. You think that, and they're like, no, no, but it's Naples, and I'll be down there doing a book signing on the 13th and 14th. Then I head back to Naples two weeks later, and I do a corporate speaking event, a lot of corporate speaking events in Naples. So I'm going to be back in Florida three more times
0: in the next month, which- It's I'm also the thinking. only state that's open the way that it is. Yeah, it
1: is, mm-hmm. and, and but people are still very- they're very respectful i they i don't i i didn't, ha- I, didn't see, <laughs> I didn't see i didn't see where people were were butting up to me and but you you least what i've saw but you're right people are people
0: i mean it's a big it, it's a big state you know i think people have different opinions on the whole thing um you know whatever but i mean I, I do feel like we're finally turning a tide on this whole thing and and things are actually looking very positive no matter where you go just cases down and um, you know, different options coming with the vaccine, and you know, my dad is seventy. He got the vaccine; very little side effects for him, which was good. Um, yeah. Oh, so another thing I wanted to mention is I don't know if you know this, but friends of the show Cavino and Rich, as I was on my way to do this, <laughs> they uh, they just did their, they just now finished their last show on SiriusXM, as they will no longer be on the platform. Uh,
1: I, I actually, I saw something on Instagram. I didn't hear the show, but I saw. Or maybe it was a separate I know there's something that was going on Instagram and they did the video and video of of what's going on. Um, but yeah, hey, hey, if that's what they want to do, they're but they're they're like the forerunners of podcasts, man. Those guys are like the godfathers, like like people that have started before we started and they've led this
0: to where podcasts are now and and they still are the top of their game. They haven't, you know, I mean, they've really been Serious XM company guys for 16 years. So even if they do jump into the <clears throat> podcast world, I actually would say it's them going into new territory if that's what they do. Well,
1: what I mean is, as far as talk radio goes,
0: they're, yeah, great been around, great. around been, yeah, been it for a long time. For a um, long time. Yep. yep. I, and I, I do awesome. think they'll, they'll be, yeah, they'll be fine and they'll be on another platform for sure. Um, yeah. you know, just as a radio guy, I could see what's going on. Is, uh, we spoke about it like Jason Ellis no yeah. longer yeah. on the platform, uh, but he, he, uh, I believe, you know, was let go of. They got an offer, and I feel like, it was, you know, from what I know, it was just a very small, low offer. and They weren't happy with it for people who have done it as long as they have. Yeah. Um, but the company is, you know, I believe, spending like $125 million a year on Howard. They have that huge space in Midtown Manhattan, and they're going to cut things. And, uh, you know, they got to stay afloat somehow, uh, and and also the competition of podcasts.
1: Well, and, and, but those guys are, are again, th- there are people like that like myself when I if and I don't you know I don't listen to a lot of podcasts out there but no, yeah th- those guys are who I listen to overseas all the time they're because they were hilarious and they were unscripted and they said what they wanted to say and they're still like that and they still have that i don't know what it is that thing that you just want to listen to because yeah, when they sure. when they're when they're together uh, it's it's just nah they're they're gonna be great and and much respect to both of them because I honestly wouldn't even be interested in doing stuff like this if I hadn't listened to them when I was deployed. And there's a lot of veterans that can tell you the same thing. Like, man, those guys, those guys were hilarious because they said things that we would say in the team rooms, you know, the, the comments that all the, all the, all the off comments and things that, that were like, man, those guys get us there. And it was, it, it's awesome. It's awesome just to think back. Cause whenever I listen to them, it reminds me of, being in Kabul or Afghanistan or Kandahar or Baghdad or wherever else we were, because they kind of made you feel like you're back in the States, like you're kind of home. You know, that's why I, I love those guys. And I, I know we need to have Kavino back on when I'm available. So so I can, I can kind of fanboy when I'm on with him.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think we could get them both on, especially when they announce what they're doing, because I think they're going to want to get the word out for wherever they're going. So hopefully we'll get them both on. Um, oh, and you know what I also wanted to mention is it's kind of funny that the day I left Florida is the day that CPAC came to Florida. And th- <laughs> there were years where I was like, I would like to go. You know, there's cool people in the, in the conservative movement that, you know, I, I listen to their stuff and even in the talk radio field and all that. Uh, I gotta be honest. This year was not something that I was like, I'm dying to go to. I've, it's like it, I think we both have the same. Business. I'm like, I've had enough politics. I've had for enough po- for <laughs> I've had enough for my lifetime.
1: And people always say, Hey, didn't I see the Republican National Convention? Did I see, see at CPAC? The only convention that I've ever been to is the Democratic National Convention. Why
0: were you there? I got to hear that story just,
1: just to see if I could start some shit
0: Honest, <laughs> Complete honesty Just
1: to see if somebody would say something to me Just to start some shit I got invited to go down there Honest, I did, I got invited actually by Sean Hannity He goes, why don't you come down to the Democratic National Convention You can be on my show every evening And I was like, hell with it, let's go And i um, I did. I walked around everywhere. I, I know people recognize me. I walked by CNN booths. I walk, I, even the Fox tent, who, who was the big Benghazi hater at Fox at that time? Um, damn. He was on the five too, but I always see him. And I know he maybe There you go. There you go. And I walked by, I said, just say something, say something. And nope, nothing. And beyond it, it, you know, it was a great experience though, because I'd never been to one and it was fun kind of just being that, I wasn't an asshole to anybody. I didn't say anything to anybody. I just wanted to see if all this talk was just talk. About, you guys are you guys are liars. You guys are idiots. You guys are you guys are not telling the truth. This is bo- I'm here say something to me and I would walk around everywhere just on my own. Nobody there. Just me everywhere and nobody said a word. Actually, the only people that said a word when I come through security the Secret Service guys and the state police would always recognize me. They're like, are you Tono?" I'm like, yeah, yeah. I am. He goes, what the hell are you doing here? I said, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to see if I could start some crap. That's all. And I was on Alex Jones show once on a, on a uh, Newsmax and then Hannity, I was on Hannity's every night. And that was when I was doing a lot of the news. So the reason I was there is to be on Hannity was like the, he wanted me, I said, sure, I'll go down there. And and, um, they, Fox paid for, it. I, it wasn't Fox that paid for it. Um, some, I know I didn't, it wasn't Fox. I, I don't get paid by Fox. I never have. Um, but, um, it was, it was really the, cause it was only on his show, maybe five minutes at a time every night. It was mainly for me just as, okay, you, I'm here. You guys are all these, and this is when the trolls were bad, when they were, I was getting threats. I'm going to kick your ass. Oh, you're full of crap. Oh, you're a baby killer. This, and I even, I'm here.
0: Don't so you think most of those people though are like yeah, they, they don't even go anywhere. They they just stay on the computer all day long. They, they probably weren't even there because most of the people yeah. in the media, like <laughs> on TV, they, they may say horrible things on TV, but they're not the type of pers- people, usually who are gonna go up and start. And,
1: and you're right, you're right. I, but that was also me learning. I didn't know at the time. Like, well, what's the best place for me to go? Okay, I'm here. Let's and anyway, I, I didn't want anything to happen, but it was me saying. Come on, guys, if we're going to well, talk I'm on, shit. I'm curious,
0: there was no one who respectfully came up to you and said, like, hey, do I have my facts wrong? And maybe just wanted to learn. And that would, that
1: would have been fantastic, dude. It would have given me a new perspective. It would have probably shown some light on, and nobody did that either. Um, there, I have respect. One guy did that, but not during the DNC. It was actually after the Benghazi hearing. Uh the the third one I went to down at down in the Capitol building, the ones that weren't televised. I mean, none of them were ever televised. I did three different. This was the last one when Trey Gatty was doing his report. So we had to go down there again. Um, and he always badmouthed us. He always said, you know, hey, they're just trying to hurt Obama and they're trying to hurt Hillary. And that was Elijah Cummings, the late Elijah Cummings. But after I did my third testify and he was there every time I testified, he was there in the, in the committee. He's part of it. He's the one Democrat that came up to me after it was all done. No, he never stopped talking shit, but after it was done, he came up and he shook my hand. He says, you did a great job. He says, I'm proud. I, uh, you know, I says, I'm proud that what you did. I, I respect what you did. He, and he said, thank you. And, um, you know, I, Elijah, I, Elijah, Cummings. Uh, Elijah Cummings. Yeah. And, and I did, it, it gave me a newfound respect for him, even though he wouldn't do it publicly, at least he had the balls enough in that setting around everybody. It wasn't like he was doing it in secret. I mean, Adam Schiff was there, Trey Gowdy was there and then all their little minions that run around all the little lawyers that are on their staff. And, um, and, uh, and uh, Congresswoman Duckworth was there and, um, and he did it in front of everybody. And, and I really wish he would have said that outwardly to, uh, to, to when he was on the news, but it was still respectful to me, at least behind the scenes. And it gave me a newfound respect for him. And I, I still remember it. I still remember his hand coming out and shaking and his looking into his eyes and seeing that he was I, I thought he was very sincere. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, that that was one thing that came out of the Benghazi hearings with as far as politics goes. Some of them still have immense integrity, but I also saw on the other end that when it comes to the media, they're going to say what the talking heads want them to say on what their party wants them to say publicly and again, that's where also the, the 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 media, my version of the media started to go, okay, this is horse shit. I need to start getting away from this because they're not – this is not what real people are really like. This is just what they want you to see on TV because it's politics. And uh, yeah, but I do remember that. But other than that, bro, yeah, I would have – that would have been great at the DNC. And I probably would have went on their show if they would have asked me to. I walked – the opportunities were there, and I made yeah. myself available. but nobody. I,
0: I just always think it, it it is good when you see people who could say, "Hey, I was wrong in this," and they and they want to learn. Um, you know, we got to get to Holly McKay, but I'm even just thinking of really quick in my head because we got to bring her on. But um, Walter Jones, Congressman Walter Jones, who died, was like a a huge supporter of the war in Iraq. Um, it, that was like his big thing. He's the guy who called. <laughs> French fries, freedom fries. If yeah. You remember yeah. That. And he was and, and he was very hawkish. And he said when guys came back to his district losing, you know, limbs, he started to question himself. And he said, Is was this really necessary? And he changed his stance on that. And and he spent the rest of his congressional career trying to um trying to redo his mistakes, basically, and, and get the country back on the right track. And whether you agree with him or not is not even what I'm talking about. I think it just takes a lot for someone to say I voted this way and my principles completely yeah. changed. And yeah, I I get there's people who don't feel that way. Like Dan Crenshaw it is a hawk, you know, and, and there are Republicans. It, that's we might get in with Holly, but it's not a partisan issue in terms of uh, foreign policy, in terms of war. Um, but I just think it, it takes a big person to say my values on this have changed as I've learned more, no matter what the issue is.
1: That, that, that then you're a strong, courageous person. If you're sticking to those, whatever the, I know we got to get to Holly too, dude, I'm sorry, but if you're sticking down <laughs> that line and you're staying down here. I can't change. I can't change. I can't be. Then, then uh, you, you've, you've got some problems and, and you've got to be able to say, Hey, I made a mistake. It's okay to say it's more courageous to say, Hey, I made a mistake than to stick to that narrative. Even though you know it's wrong. Um, it shows a lot of integrity for someone to say, you know what, I I I thought this way. This is what I had. I wasn't correct. This is what I have now, uh, and I think now, and that that shows a lot of integrity. I, I really believe that doesn't mean you always have to change your mind on everything, but if if it shows that you were wrong and you're able to say, hey, I was wrong here, then, and I have respect for that because I've been wrong a lot, and it's even on even on Iraq too. I think back now, I loved being in Iraq. I loved working in Iraq. That I think we needed to be there looking back now. And a lot of my veteran buddies out there be like, "Tono, you're an asshole. You're an idiot. Why? I don't think so anymore. <laughs> I know we need to be in Afghanistan. Definitely. At least initially. Um, Iraq. I don't think so. I really don't. I don't, I'm not going to say hundred percent for sure, because I don't know all the facts. I was just a little minion ground pounder on the ground. I was, but um, I don't really know if really we needed to be there at that time. And as far as overthrowing dictators, I think that's something that we've realized now It doesn't work. You don't overthrow dictators. All it creates is a vacuum of power and destroys countries. Dictators are dictators for a reason. It's because that's how they can control their country. And it's the best for those countries. Look at Syria. Look at Libya. Look at Iraq. We've completely destroyed them by removing dictators. And I think if anything we learn from counter-terrorism, ter- counterterrorism and foreign policy, is that we don't do that anymore. We don't go in there and try to overthrow dictators because what is behind the dictators once they're gone is a hundred times worse than than they are. And, and I've seen that in three separate countries. So yeah, anyway. Yeah. Wow.
0: Hey, so before we bring on Holly McKay, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed-out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC-spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring they receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states, as well as directly online. And uh, I will give out the address, of course, that most of you know by now. But uh, on your last Florida course, I know that this is what you guys shoot with. This is what you trust.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fantastic ammunition. That tumble on impact is, is man, it, it dang near penetrates anything. It reminds me of that Johnny Dangerously movie where who was a Joe Piscopo who says, Hey, I got this gun and it shoots and it goes through walls and it goes through <laughs> cars and it goes through, he said schools, but of course that's not the right thing to say nowadays back yes. in the with it. But it, it just is a tremendous ammo. It works well. um, And, and, you know, they're working their butts off to get it out to you guys and they go first come first serve. It doesn't matter the order. Once the ammunition is in, it gets out to the next person, whether you've ordered one box or you've ordered 200 boxes, which shows that uh, which shows a lot of integrity uh, within the company. So, guys, check them out if you haven't done so. Once you shoot them, it's all you're going to shoot, and it's some of the best home defense ammunition on
0: the market 100%. So, don't take it from me, take it from Chris. Uh, fort scott munitions.com, F O R T S C O T T dot scom and use the exclusive promo code BattleLine for 15% off your order. That's only available to our listeners. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BattleLine Tactical, and the BattleLine podcast. Go there now. Link is in bio, or the description, I should say. FortScottMunitions.com, promo code BattleLine. And you heard me talk about them last week, but I, I we had an issue with the link. So I'm mentioning them again we are so proud to have on board uh, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Uh, you and I have both have had experiences where we needed to speak to someone who is professionally trained and a therapist. And, and that's why this is such a great resource for whether it's veterans or it's civilians like myself who need the opinion of someone to, to help them out during tough times or, or maybe even just regular times. Yeah, and it does. Sometimes it's easier to get stuff off your chest
1: to, and I wouldn't say a stranger, but a licensed professional that that you know they're there to listen to you talk and, and not be judged, where sometimes it's tough to listen, talking to somebody that you know because, or even a family member, and not saying you don't want to do that. Sometimes you, but there are times where you just want to talk and have somebody listen. And having that professional there, licensed professional listen to you, Um, which is one of the best things happened to me in the beginning um, and helped me get a lot off my chest is, is, is the way to go. And I always recommend that. And then, and then as you go down the line, you just determine if you want to stay with them or not, but at least initially you get in there and it's somebody that is, you know, is not going to judge you. They just want to listen and help. And so highly recommend that if you're going through hard times right now, just talking to somebody is cathartic. And is also therapeutic, and it also allows you to make that decision if you want to keep doing that, or okay, I'm going to go another route. But you don't know unless you know, and that's where you have to try it first. And so we're going with something a company uh, that has licensed professionals to listen to you is 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 what I would recommend at least at the initial stage, and then
0: yeah, you can- especially during a time like this, this is really a a great way to go uh, to yes. go about getting that help. So BetterHelp will yes. assess your needs. And match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. These two, for example, uh, Marcel is an excellent listener and I'm mostly impressed with how much he remembers from each session. I feel like he genuinely cares and helps me come up with strategies that work for me. I would recommend him to any of my friends and then another one here. Uh, so far I've had two sessions with Rebecca and she's been a tremendous help to me in finding solutions and working towards personal goals. Rebecca has a very relaxed demeanor and is an excellent listener and I felt she was able to quickly establish a good rapport with me. So visit better betterhelp I know I said that address last episode and it didn't forward to the right place so if if you didn't get to it last week, it should be all good to go now. So battlelinepodcast.com slash better help that's better h e l p and join the over one million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional so go there now once again battlelinepodcast dot com slash better help so joining us for the first time on Battleline podcast holly mckay national bureau correspondent and human rights journalist covering Iraq Afghanistan Iran Syria Pakistan Yemen Myanmar Global Risk Specialist and Outreach Director for Burnt Children Relief. Many of you also know her from Fox News previously, and uh, of course, we want to talk about your latest book, your your, uh, debut book, really, Only Cry for the Living, memos from inside the ISIS battlefield, and it's an honor to have you on.
3: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: Okay, you loosen up. I know you're not like this, for real.
1: I've had a few <laughs> drinks with you. Loosen the hell up, Holly. Let's go. Right.
3: Where, where are the cigars?
1: <laughs> I know where... she. I, this lady can smoke cigars more than... What, what was that? <laughs> where we're at? We're at that event. I think you, were, I think you smoked more That's than... That's right. Pete and they
3: went were, they were yeah. hand-rolling the cigars.
1: Hand-rolling cigars. She was smoking yeah. more than Pete, Pete Rose, brother. Pete Rose is for gambling. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I think I smoked enough. I, I made myself pretty much sick, but yeah, it was a good night.
1: Yeah, it was. That's good to have you, and good to see you again. It's been how many years? Four years? Five years? A lot of years.
3: Yeah, I think we had drinks. Last time, we had drinks at the Irish Bar when you were in New York, so that would have been probably about two or three years ago, I think.
1: Yeah, so it's been a while. Well, it's good. I yeah. Now, I, your book and everything coming out, but I, I know we have questions lined up, but I always talk over Ian, and I, I got to stop going. No, doing not that. at all. Uh,
0: but you know, I, last Holly, episode, I was the one who talked over the guests the whole time. Dude, dude, I listened buddy. back and I was like, Ian, shut the
1: hell <laughs> off. But yeah, I, honestly, Holly. Before we get started, the normal interview stuff. Just at least right. tell people a little bit about yourself and get into what you're doing, what you did, what you're doing now, and then we'll get into the the Because I still want to know how Kurdistan was. Because you know, I lost touch a couple years yeah. ago. You were you were yeah. still going, so yeah. Tell a little bit about yeah. yourself and. And your ballet days too? Get into all. Yes. The, all the, all
3: so I am originally from Australia. I yes, I was a ballet. That's dancer. the great accent. So yeah. I love the Australian. I,
1: I love thought the that Australian was accent. South. I thought that was South Georgia,
3: dude. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that? So I'm, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So I was a ballet dancer, and long story short, I I ended up. You know, I always had a love for writing and, and for the foreign policy world, but I got injured when I was 18, so it sort of cut my plan a lot. I ended up going back to school in Sydney. I got pretty bored fairly fast. I ended up going to New York to finish my degree. I think I was 20. I became an intern. I didn't even know what an internship was, but everybody talked about it, It sounded cool. So I ended up becoming an intern at Fox and then they sort of hired me and and sponsored me. And I I came to the US and was, was in New York for a little bit, then went to Los Angeles and I was sort of uh, much more of a general assignment reporter, so I'd be covering a lot of court. I'd be doing all the sort of Oscar celebrity hoopla business, which actually was really surprisingly fascinating training ground because you really learn to cut through a lot of the BS or really smell that that sort of BS. So I. I really, yeah, and and you sort of see all these people that are kissing everyone's ass. And, there's BS in really, Hollywood.
1: There's not BS in yes, Hollywood.
3: is Yeah, you know? really. Yeah, there's a, and there's so much ass kissing. And I just was like, I can, I, I don't want to be around this anymore. Um, but yeah, I always had a love for for the world and and for different cultures and, and trying to kind of understand the human stories. So I sort of segued into to that and covering a lot of the the overseas conflicts and things. So that led me on a path. Uh, through the Arab Spring and then of course uh, the proliferation of ISIS in around 2014 Mm -hmm. in Iraq and that became kind of my obsession for for four or five years of constant going back and forth through Iraq and through Syria and uh, trying to to piece together um, something that was a little bit deeper than just uh, one side of the story and I really tried to to see things from every angle possible and so that was kind of what what led the book, which started with just a bunch of notebooks all piled up. I think there's about twenty of them in storage. So yeah, I decided it was time to kind of compile them a little bit, and hopefully someone will read it.
0: When you were active- and, and by the way, someone For- will read it because yeah. it's, <laughs> the, it's the number it's one, like one category yeah. on Amazon right now. Yeah, yeah,
3: it's exciting.
1: I- because when you were doing when you're going over there doing it, were you always taking notes or were, did you think, hey, I'm going to write a memoir, I'm going to write a book about, or did you just start happening? I'm just down there, I'm going to take notes. and uh, I, a diary.
3: I mean, I always had in the back of my head, you know, it'd be great to write a book. I wasn't quite sure what that would be. Um, so, yeah, I was always a big note taker. I'm very a very old school journalist in that mm-hmm. I, you know, I like to sit with people and being a writer gives me the privilege of being able to sort of sit and not have to worry about big cameras. And, and so people could really open up. And I always, uh, I, yeah, I rarely ever recorded the interviews. I preferred to sort of sit there and be able to kind of write them. And, and really, beyond just the interviews, what I really did in my notebooks was more just try to take note of the details, because it always comes down to the details, you know, what they're wearing, yeah.
2: Yeah. expressions
3: on their face, Um, you know, the weather, you know, what is going on, because that's what makes that, that's what brings the reader in and makes it immersive. So for me, a lot of what I wanted to do was just kind of remember those details. And that's what uh, writing down, you know, was really really great for me. And it wasn't, it really wasn't until, you know, 2017, I guess, more toward the end of the trajectory that I decided that, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of put it together as memos in a book. So it's sort of a little bit more raw, a little, you know, not as polished as as maybe some of the books you'll read, but I, I hope that it kind of gives a bit of a raw sensibility throughout the process.
1: Well, and those details too, especially for veterans or guys that have served in Northern Iraq or Mosul or served in, uh, served in Syria. Those details, when you put those in there, that adds validity to your writing. It add validity. She knows what the hell she's talking about. When you talk about where the cafe is, when they're wearing it or yeah. colors, or, yeah. uh, I'll read it and I'll read a book. And yeah, you know, the, they, they were the location of, of, uh, of a piece of clothing was in the wrong spot. I'm like, wait a second. Were they really in the yeah. right spot? Where were they? T- yeah. What were they at? But I, I know you were, but that's helpful yeah. us. And, and it brings us back. I tell you, when I read yeah. your stuff, it's like god i remember working in erbil that was i remember up and open to hook on the border and it, it it so your book helps to helps us to and helps myself even like remember the stuff i did and it it makes me happy reading about it and then That's reading from your and you actually had you're embedded with and i want to get into that um you were embedded with some of the peshmerga even to the depth yeah. of of being yeah that is not easy to do um, from experience, I know that's not easy to do. How did you manage that? And I know it took you over time to do it. Explain that, how difficult yeah. that is.
3: So I spent, you know, a lot of time Peshmerger and also Arakiyami, which was separate. But yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I think for me, before I'd even gone to cover, I'd made some really good connections uh, through mutual friends of mine that had worked uh, in the tech kind of space in in Abil. And who had connected me with some some very well connected people there, and so I already had the connection a little bit initially before I went, and then you know when you're back and forth with someone, and and you kind of get to know them, so that when you see them in person for the first time, and the Kurds are extremely welcoming and hospitable mm-hmm. people, so they kind of take you in and under their wing, and so from that it's just it's, it comes down to just you know really vetting your people, networking, and uh, and they were always really they always really wanted their story told. They wanted to, um, they wanted a journalist and a writer to come in there and, and see what was happening and see what they were doing. And especially in the early days, so much of what, you know, they were such a ragtag kind of, yeah. um, army. you know, they didn't have the equipment. They were fighting. Erbil and Baghdad have notoriously had a lot of conflict. So, their side of the story was that Baghdad wasn't giving them their fair share of the weapons and the money that from the budget for that and by law they couldn't really get it from other countries because you know Iraq as a unified mm-hmm. country had to go through Baghdad so I mm-hmm. think Erbil really wanted to show the world what they were doing to fight ISIS how difficult it was for them they were bringing their AK47s from home and were against a, a you know a, a terrorist group that had U.S. weapons, yeah. you know, that the yeah. Iraqi army had abandoned. So, yeah, I think they were always really determined to to tell their story. So, I never found getting in to be that bad, but um, but yeah, we definitely had some some interesting experiences, and they were always always extremely respectful, always extremely caring, and uh, you know, for me as a journalist, the one thing that I always tried to to also be mindful of is I didn't want them to you know have to take their sights off their fighting in order to protect me so that's always yeah. a balance because they're they are so protective to the point where I'm like I don't need five people right now <laughs> I'm okay <laughs> But, yeah they're really 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 great fighters
1: did, so am I, I, I quite I spent such a long time since I've been there but did you find that what you're talking about? That Iraqis, that Baghdad at all, you've already said it, to what extent were they not providing the Kurds weapons, the, the stuff they needed? And, and in my opinion, if we gave the Kurds what they needed, they could probably stabilize the region. Uh, right. We don't, and we don't as well because of I, I think some of it's Turkey. You can correct me if I'm wrong too because no. of, but how bad was it? Is it still that bad? we the we're, we're, they're not getting anything that they need from us and they're just fighting, really fighting by their by their wits and by their just their strong and their courage more so yeah. than having their armaments. Is it still that bad? And and is there a way we yeah. can fix that?
3: I think over time, I definitely noticed it improved. So from the beginning and, and from Baghdad's point of view, it was that, you know, they, their claim was that they weren't receiving the oil money from that that could, that Erbil owed them, so this you always tit for tat. Um, so yeah, so in the beginning it was it was terrible, and definitely over time I did start to notice that I think other countries had started to come in. Uh, I, I think there was an agreement with the US at one point, um, and and the US had definitely amplified its base there. So I think things definitely improved for them, uh, especially toward you know as we're going into that Mosul offensive and and after that. But in the beginning, it was it was super terrible, and the, you know the issue is is that it's very hard for the U.S. or to, for other countries to kind of say too much because it is a sovereign country, okay. and it, the way that that Washington often views it is that it, that's up to them to resolve. You know, that's a disp- right. it's an internal dispute. And our withstanding policy, as is most of the EU, is that um, Iraq is a unified country and, and Kurdistan is semi-autonomous. Obviously, the Kurds would love to, to have their own country. Yeah. Um, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I do think, you know, it's a, it's a tough spot. But I think definitely there was a big, you know, there was big red flags in the sense that they, they needed help that they didn't get. And, and what happened, I think in the beginning too is because the U S had pulled out of Iraq at the end of 2011. So there was this little vacuum and both, both Abil and Baghdad had to rely on Iran because when ISIS kind of came in and they were both scrambling um, and, uh, and Iran is a, a three hour flight away. Yeah. And they were able to come in and provide a lot of the weapons and fighters and assistance and that, that to push ISIS back. And so, you know, even the Kurds were like, well, what are we supposed to do, we had to take Iran's help. The U S wasn't here and it would take the U S even to kind of, um, you know, mobilize all its assets that that was going to take some time anyway. And Obama, you know, initially viewed it as the JV team. So I think, you know, that, that, Automatically push them a lot closer to Iran, which counters the U.S. Yeah, interests. Yeah. So it just—it was a messy situation all around.
1: But people don't realize that. Go, go ahead, Ian. Go, go ahead. No, no I'm sorry.
0: I, what I—I I was just going to say one of the interesting things, at least from what I know, which is less than you guys. I mean, I haven't been on the ground there, but about our allies there is there's this perception that we should be over there, that they need to form some Jeffersonian democracy and they need to be like America is. But from what I know about a lot of the rebel groups there, whether it's the and I don't know the philosophy of each of them, but whether it's the PKK, the YPJ, why, you know, a lot of them are socialist in nature. They don't share our values, but they do share our values and that they want to eliminate
3: terrorism. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the, the PKK, it's, it's a Marxist a Marxist ideology. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that, but you know, with that comes, uh, you know, a different treatment of women uh, and certain different sort of standards. So you know, there's always going to be a trade-off and, and, we have to decide, do we prefer that? Or do we prefer uh, extreme, you know, Islamic extremists? So there is going to be a trade-off in that. And, But I, um, I
0: just, my, the yeah. point I'm making sort of is I think that the the uh, objective should be, like as Chris would say, eliminating the threat more than changing the hearts and minds of these yeah. people to think yeah. exactly like us. Because yeah. a lot of them don't want what we have. they They want something completely different. They just want to be able to live in somewhat pe- a, a peaceful situation yeah. where they're not threatened by ISIS.
3: I think we've moved away from that. I'd like to think we've moved away from that model mm-hmm. a lot. I think in the beginning, after 9-11, there was this sort of surge of making Afghanistan and then you know, later Iraq, yeah. some kind mm-hmm. of liberal democracy. I feel like we've moved away from that. And I definitely know um, you know, when, right. when, when Trump came in, his objective, whether people agree or not, was just to eliminate ISIS. It wasn't to you know take out Assad it wasn't to give Kurdistan its own country it wasn't all these other things it was very a very one straightforward mandate and I think that made it easier for a lot of the the generals in the and the U.S. side of things on the ground because the mandate was clear and it wasn't being muddied by those sort of nation hearts and minds kind of objectives that wasn't on the table then so that that it made the mission very clear.
1: Well, we've, we've learned that hearts and minds doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. I've seen it. It doesn't work. It's just, Hey, let's get in there and do what we need to do. And then get the hell out. Somebody hits us. You go and hit the shit out of them, And and then you get out and and you let the Barzani's and the Talibanis, whether you agree with them or not, you, you got to let them work it out. You got to let them figure it out. And and I I lived on Barzani's compound for over for a year off and on. And you're right. He he, he's a, he's a pretty hard and you know, you know, him probably better than I do. He's a pretty hard nosed guy, but he he knows he doesn't want terrorism in his country. And and I saw Erbil, I saw Christians and Muslims and Yazidis. I saw everybody living together. Yes, I saw a, a caste system, just like we have low income and, and and high wealthy people. It's the same. But I really saw it working more or less than yeah. the rest of the countries I've been in. So um, having that hearts and minds mandate that we had when we first started work, I, it it was a complete mistake. And that's good to hear that we maybe are learning from our mistakes, whether it's as quick as we would have liked it to be, but it's good to hear that. And that's good that, that you saw that there because I, I wasn't able to see that. I still saw the, right. the hearts and minds crap that, that we shouldn't have been doing. I, in, in so, my opinion, yeah. you know, you being there and, and you know, you're, we're, we're going to get into your book, but, we want to get into cause we started talking about the hearts and minds, the children that you started to see. And, and, and I guess I want to know your first experience of, of. Whether it was good or horrible of when you started to see, Hey, the children are the one that are caught in the mess of this and, and where you started to, you know, where your, where your book went as well. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that? And it can be raw as you want it to be, but you can get into it as deep as you want it to be too. And it can be happy or sad. I, I just, I just want to know because that's something that I, as guys mm-hmm. like myself, we see but we don't involve with it. We 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 right. do, we, we want to help but in our mission is not to help the children but man, when you see so, when you see a young girl or a boy get blown up
3: mm-hmm. off
1: a bomb that was probably for you, uh, um, it's yeah. it, it it hurts. So, you know, can you talk about that a bit if you could.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So, for me what I really wanted to do in the book is is and there's definitely a lot of military aspect in the book, but I really wanted to to highlight, you know, a lot of stuff away from, you know, as journalists we call it the bang bang. So I really wanted to, you know, go in and really draw out those human experiences and that human impact of what war is and obviously children play a big part in that. And, you know, there's just so many different components of it and it's sad and it's just there's just so many children with with lost childhoods and it's hard to just kind of, you know, I think there were moments where you become very overwhelmed by it because, Everybody has problems and everybody, um, and over time, I just sort of started to see that they talked about, you know, it was almost like they complain less, but they complain less in the sense that it was losing hope that anybody was was ever going to be there to kind of help them. And that was always really the, the sad part for me. And, and the Yazidis, I spent a lot of time with them and just sort of the atrocities that the Yazidis Girls and the boys endured. It was just really it was just shocking to me. Uh, so many of the boys were taken and um, you know forced to to convert to Islam and, and become these child soldiers and were held you know, held as human shields and really put through the most horrific kind of indoctrination. And for the you know, fortunate ones that managed to get us to escape, they were going back to camps without any sort of professional help. There was a situation where. Uh, you know, one of these young boys tried to behead his baby sister at a camp because that was the indoctrination that he, he'd he been taught. And it was just, it was so difficult for his mother to try to, to do that. And the Yazidis were just heartbroken by this idea that for the first time they would, would have Yazidi terrorists. And that was just something that was never in, in their religion. Yeah. And this is a, a religion that predates Christianity and Islam. And... You know for the first time that's what they were dealing with is, is Yazidi terrorists. And then of course the girls and the women, and there's thousands of them still missing, were all the ones taken as as the sex slaves. And I'm talking girls as young as eight. And you know, again what, what they endured is just it's so it's so hard to to wrap our heads around it that that this was ongoing for so long and yet we were so incapable of being able to do anything about it. Um And so that was always really heartbreaking for me. But what was extraordinary is that really for the first time I saw in these communities within the Yazidis is that they were shattering so many of the taboos. So sexual violence being something that was always something you never talked about that happened, something that was, you know, it was too shameful to talk about. And so Mm -hmm. the women were often the ones that were, were sort of made to feel ashamed of it. But with the Yazidis, it was quite extraordinary in that they were really speaking out about what happened to them and and shattering a lot of those notions. And I just think what they've done for for that issue as a whole and going forward, you know, is going to make a really big difference um, in, in sharing their stories. So yeah, it's 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 been a journey, and I you you see such incredible resilience at the same time as you see sort of just this this sense of of sadness that that you can't do anything about and there was there was one particular moment that I I just remember feeling so helpless because we were I was in I was in the city of Sinjar and it was completely it was completely rubbled and it was just it was basically just a few military people living there it wasn't safe for anyone to go back and I I found this man who'd gone back to his house and he had two young children and it was so heartbreaking because he was telling me that he had nowhere to live, he couldn't you know, stay at the camp, and his wife had been taken and the, and the children's mother had been taken by by the dash, and he got a call one day that said, you know, if you pay me $10,000, um, I will I will give you your wife back. And this poor farmer with nothing, yeah, um, you know, scrounging around for months, and, and and people are so generous too, and that's the other beautiful thing about, you know, so many of these communities is they'll do whatever they can they'll give you the clothes off the back to to try to get a lot of these people back so eventually he manages to raise the money he calls the captor back and the captor says oh no the price is doubled now and he just you know threw up his hands and said i yeah i can't bring my you know i can't bring my wife my children's mother back i just just there's no way i can afford it and you know that sense of just overwhelming helplessness and and i'll never forget that and i think I also felt especially helpless because I knew that there was nothing I could do personally um, in terms of giving him money or, or or getting an NGO to give him money either from the US because that would have been classified as funding terrorism. So it's those sort of moments where you really just, you can't do anything, you know, except share the story because we, we can't, we can't do anything to help them legally. So, yeah, I think it's it's just been heartbreak. It's been a heartbreaking process, and those those kids are still living in camps for the most part. And it's even worse conditions now because ISIS is not the center of attention. And so the funding for that has has completely dried up. and I think we we move away from things so quickly and we we sort of forget that they're left to deal with the trauma and the the lack of resources and help.
1: that's that's what I always say. We go into countries, it's like a party. We go in there, we mess their whole place up and then we leave and let them clean up the mess and and it's yeah. it's sad that that still happens but you're exactly right i am did you ever feel threatened when you were there i mean cuz you're you're an american or and or, or even if they didn't think you were an american you're still you're not Kurd. you're not sure. you're you're trying to get stories out where you know and one thing terrorists do know they know propaganda they know social media they they know how to paint a picture they're excellent at painting pictures on social media and you're painting a different picture than what they're trying to get out there or, or so forth. So did you have a price on your head? I never asked you this. I honestly, I wanted to ask you this a few times. And I just forgot. Was there a price on your head or, or was there, was there uh, Hey, let's get that, that little damn American. that keeps putting out this stuff to the U S people and tell them the truth. Was there any of that? Cause you right. were there during all that time. All that time for sure
3: I I mean no price that I'm aware of but I, <laughs> I um, yeah I think there were definitely and more of my I guess you know more hairy experiences with, were generally not in Kurdistan or more in the south of Iraq or, or Baghdad um, I, I never felt especially threatened personally by by Isis but I do yeah, I think that there was a couple of situations with the Iranian militias. I remember that feeling, an extreme sort of sense of anxiety. Um, I remember going to interview one of these militias at, at his house in Baghdad and being with, you know, my fixer, who's sort of what we call um, sort of interpreter and they kind of help with logistics and, and you know, our driver being kind of at the front. And, and I'm just going in with her and, and she was wonderful, still a close friend now. And so going to this, this militia, Iranian militia guy's house, and and you always have to strike that balance of, you know, I'm there as a journalist. I'm not there to interrogate you. I'm not there to stick it to the man. I'm just simply there to get to get your story. Mm-hmm. And so I always make that very clear. Um, but I remember in this sort of situation, this, this guy starts off with, you know, bragging about the Americans that he killed in 2003.
1: This is our, this is Iran, Iranian. This is yeah, Iranian.
3: Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah he's, he's Iraqi, but he... Um, you know, that he, you know, he's, he answers to Iran essentially. And then, um, yeah. And, and so long story short, so he's sort of bragging about this and, and I guess for me, I think I was fortunate a little bit in, in being Australian. Uh, I was viewed as a little bit less threatening than perhaps if I had just been American. I think it always made seem to make a difference when, you know, I spoke and people said you're Australian and I, yeah said yes and even though Australians are completely over there and have been over there since the beginning they didn't always see that they just see it as America um so so that made a little easier anyway but yeah he he's sort of bringing in more and more and more of these militia guys and they're all coming in and it's just me it's just me and next thing I'm sitting in this room with and probably about 30 or 40 armed Iranian militias and, you know, they've got the hooker and, you know, and they're all this really
0: sounds like the stuff movie. of a movie.
3: Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then the next thing, you know, the one guy says, well, I'm taking you to, to meet Casim Soleimani in Iran. We're going on the private plane. And I, I sell, oh, thank you for the offer. I think I'll pass. Um, but, you know, it was just one of these situations and then the door was locked and I just looked at my, you know, I had a, a sort of a code word with my fixer and I just said, we, we need to call the driver and we need to leave right now. And she was kind of, you know, smoking the hookah and eating the food and enjoying it. I was like, no, we need to go now. So um, that was sort of a red flag for me. But it, I think a lot of it, you know, and I got out and I was fine. But a lot of it is, I know it sounds funny, but it's so intuition based. There are so many things that I think I really have to tap into this kind of sense of what I know in my gut is going to be a right thing and a wrong thing, and yeah, my intuition has definitely never led me astray. But but it's I've relied on it, you know, probably more than what most sane people would think, um, you know, is a good thing. But it's 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 hard to explain. And there's something about being being in that Mesopotamia, this beginning of civilization that it just, there's something different about it where I feel like I can, I can very much connect to, to, to where my mind needs to be. And, and, and what is happening that, that I don't experience in a lot of other places. And and so Iraq's definitely been been a place for that, but. Um, it's yeah.
1: romantic. It's, it's very romantic. I loved being, I, I said, it, I've said it myself, I was my best person in the middle East amidst all that craziness, and it just you just it feels. I, I you don't feel like I, I feel like Lawrence of Arabia sometimes, but there are times where just it's like, wow, this is where everything started. This is so beautiful yeah. here, and you do you you feel you just feel alive, and you do your senses yeah. are up. Granted, though, yeah. I don't I don't know how you let yourself get locked in there, but that would have been like a red flag to me. Or as soon as I heard the click in the lock, okay, it's time for us to climb out the window. It, it's time. Yeah. For,
2: for yeah. To get,
1: get yeah. out of there uh yeah right. ian i know i'm monopoly i always do no this. no, no I, not at I all no, the well, conversation no I'm not sorry. the least no one-
3: it wouldn't have been fun to end up you know when someone's playing in iran or uh, uh, my parents are
2: hot <laughs> <neck>. <laughs>
0: yeah for real the one thing I'm, I'm curious about is i mean these amazing stories that you have from all of these different countries doing all, all the reporting that you have it's gotta be strange that, you know, you're the one on the ground doing all this and this always gets overshadowed by, by yeah. <laughs> like the cause of the day or the cause of the week. And I feel like there's like a huge disconnect between the American public and what's actually going on in the Middle East, probably yeah. because there's so few people who voluntarily serve. And there's uh, you know, like in my in the town I live in right here, um, James Reagan, you know, was an army ranger who died from here. But he's like the only guy uh, from around here who served in combat. And I think most people, they they don't see past the borders of America,
3: really. Sure. And, you know, and that for me is something that I always wanted to try to do, was really bring back uh, those experiences. And just to make people sort of see it in that very human light. So sort of the human-to-human experience. I think, you know, it's always going to be tough. It's always going to be, you know, w- world reporting is always going to take a backseat to what's, whatever's happening, and I think that's always been the case. I remember talking to journalists who were covering Bosnia and things in the 90s, and they would complain about the same thing where you know Princess Diana did something and, and that would sort of overshadow, you know, that war. And so for me it would be sort of something similar. I think I remember working on a story at one point and then Kim Kardashian did an US. In a martini glass or something. And yep, the- I, rem- I remember that it broke, broke the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember so so you know my story was sort of overshadowed by that. But in that just- Which
0: is crazy. Which is yeah. crazy yeah. when you think about it. And, and it says a lot about the attention span of the American people, because if what they wanted to know, was what you're reporting on. It would be higher in demand. Uh, you know, like this is what we want to see, unfortunately.
3: But I also, I don't just, you know, and, and American people are often extremely receptive to these stories and, and they want to learn more, but I also blame, you know, sometimes a lot of the news organizations bury the stories too, and they don't give them the placement and the time and the attention that they deserve. Um, when I think, you know, American people want to learn about it, but, you know, if it's not going to be right there in front of your screen or when you click on your mobile app and you have to kind of dig through and find it,
2: yeah, yeah. you know, it's,
3: it's not going to get the attention it needs. And I think if if it was given the placement that it often deserves, so it would. So I think uh, the media has become a much more clickbait-driven sort of society and it wants to spoon-feed feed people what. It thinks people want to see and people click on that because it's in front of them. But I think they would also click on these stories if it was in front of them, too. And the fight is always to to get the stories to you know the attention that they deserve. Well,
0: it, I, it, I think part of it is, though, that people also like things that they could easily react to sure. and they easily have an opinion on. You know, what what's your opinion on Black Lives Matter? Everyone is going to have an opinion where, where whatever it is when it comes to the stories you're covering, I think it's much more complex. I, I can't just watch a two minute sound blurb from you and say, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the wrong thing. It, these are way more complex issues that people need to read into. And and I think people like things that they can have a, an opinion on immediately. It's like this fast food journalism type thing.
3: Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of gray areas. It's, it's not a black and white thing. There are no, there are no absolute answers with, with any mm-hmm. of this. And so that, that makes it hard, but uh, I, I, I try to humanize it to a degree and I try to to make it something that is, is a little bit more easily digestible and something that people can relate to, even if the subject matter is heavy. Uh, I do think that, that you know, things that people – and there's so much that we can all relate to, no matter where we are in the world. Uh, we can relate to that human experience and, and what a child is going through and um, or even if there's something – you know what is it like to have to run from your home? What is it like to, you know, what do you take with you? Um, all those kind of little things I always think are really interesting from a psychology point of view. To to teach people, how do you teach children the reason why they had to run from their homes? How do you explain that it was your neighbor that suddenly turned mm-hmm. his gun on you? You know, and these are just these are things that you know, ha- hopefully we never really have to deal with in the United States, but. I think that they're important things um, just in that human experience for, for everybody to understand. I think well, if I could just
0: follow up on one thing and now I'm no, going no, no, to no, 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 let Chris talking, go right talking. after me. No, but okay. I, oh, oftentimes we say, Oh, the media isn't covering this. And it's actually more so like what you said, you could find these articles on Fox and CNN, but it's buried somewhere. Which, yeah. I think when people say the media isn't covering what we mean is like, when you turn on CNN, Fox news, this isn't, if you turn it on for five minutes, chances are you're not going to hear these stories. So what I'm wondering, and you could be as candid about it as you want or not. You know, mm-hmm. as you said, you're no longer at Fox News. I- I'm just curious: did they ever try to put a spin on what you're reporting to make it fit their their agenda, or ha- try to get you not to cover something that might challenge the agenda that they're putting out there?
3: Sure, I've been very fortunate throughout my career, and I've what you know, it's been that I think that I've had great relationships with with my bosses and and my managers and superiors who've always really supported me and especially early in my career um you know I had a lot it was instilled in me these very old school journalistic values that I think carry through regardless and and it was always you know for me that was always I was very old school in that I always wanted to get everybody's side of the story and I think I'm I'm not great with rules. I'm not great at being told what to do. <laughs> no, I, I'm not, I, really, you know. I, yeah. So I think, I think if anyone had tried to tell me what to do, I probably would have just been like, huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, now, I, come on,
1: be honest. You wouldn't have been huh. You would have been okay. Go after
3: yourself. Yeah, yeah, yourself. Maybe yeah. a little yeah. bit more <laughs> explicit. But yeah, I think I pretty much established myself fairly early in that that I was going to do things my way in the way that I thought was right. And no one ever really questioned mm. that. I worked very independently, so I've always been that kind of free spirit who just who who works fairly independently and, and runs off to wherever she needs to go for a few weeks and comes back and, you know, files and does her work then. So I think, you know, for me and I can only speak from my experience, it's I've always been very firm in in maintaining that. Um you know, I needed to cover things from all sides of the story. Having said that, I also think it's really important for any journalist to understand who their audience is. So, you know, to a degree, you also want to understand what's going to appeal to the readership. And so, um, you know, I think that's that's always a crucial thing as well, and that's always something that uh, I considered. But it definitely didn't cloud uh, my objectivity or my desire to ensure that each voice was kind of heard. Yeah. Well, and
1: by embedding yourself in In the groups that you're reporting on, there's not many that do that anymore, at least not overseas or I would even say here in the States. It's more of, okay, let's search what somebody else is writing or let's see what somebody else says. It's not first person journalism anymore, at least. And I'm not a journalist at all, but but you don't see that anymore. And uh, yeah. And well, what's again? What's your take on that? Is is it real journalism? Are we really getting? Are we getting secondhand information that somebody's trying to piece together with little here, a little there, than actually getting human intelligence? This is what happened. This is from the horse's mouth. I'm writing it down this way because I, I, I don't see that at all. Right. I, I think right? You're one of the last persons that I've seen do that. And and now, like I said, you're, you're no longer really doing it for well for Fox or anybody else. You're still doing it, but. That's, yeah, that's why journalisms journalism is called fake news now. That's why we don't have real general.
3: yeah, so, you know it is. and I, I'm a big uh, you know believer that we we need to have people on the ground and we need to have uh, somebody interpreting that information because I mean, you can see you can see on Twitter, and it happens so much is, your pictures will be posted of, of a protest and, the, you know, this is happening here, and this is happening here. And you're like, this picture was taken into government. <laughs> and if nobody's kind of vetting that or understanding no. that, then it gets shared uh, 500,000 times and suddenly everyone's mm-hmm. saying this is what's happening at a certain place and it happens so much. Um, and then also the other thing I found in this sort of citizen journalism, and, and social media can be great for so many things, but... Uh, but you you, someone needs to be interpreting that information sort of firsthand Mm -hmm. is is diaspora communities have this suddenly you know huge influence over what's happening Mm -hmm. and you know it's one thing to to be pushing a a sort of a revolution or a movement and saying this 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 and this and this in in tehran when you're sitting in the safety of um, yeah yeah washington dc and then the story gets muddled and twisted and and maybe protests are made to be things that they aren't or that's then endangering people that are there that are involved in it because it's receiving a different push. And policymakers, they don't really know what the hell's going on often. So they're just taking, you know, whatever the news article is or whatever's coming out on Twitter Mm -hmm. and making, you know, huge decisions based on that. So the repercussions are are still just as big, but often the information is not being... um, it's it's being manipulated and, and not often by ill intention, but it's just being manipulated to, to suit a certain agenda without somebody kind of being there to say, Well, this isn't you know, this isn't really the, the full picture. And I think that's what it comes down to. We're getting portions of the picture and not the whole thing. And and that mm-hmm. is the that's that's the challenge. Well, and that's there
1: you said repercussions. I'll say that in another another avenue. There there are no repercussions for misreporting. There's nothing more. Nobody gets re- if like like the pictures of the protests or something that's wrong. It's five years earlier, or this picture of this happened here. No, it didn't. It it didn't happen in Italy. It actually happened in in Columbus, Georgia. I mean, I know you're not gonna right. confuse those two, but right. there's no there's no repercussions. Nobody is held accountable when there is misreporting. So all I see now is misreporting. And and it just goes yeah. down the line. It is when did it go that route? I, I really, I I'm shocked that it's gone that far where people can just report whatever they want. And if it's wrong, so what? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. and not even an apology. It's the, it's,
3: I think that's a social media event. I think, um, I think, you know, when social media sort of took over as being that the main way people were engaging and getting their news and anybody could publish whatever they wanted, anybody could, publish whatever they wanted, you know, a blog or video, a YouTube, a a Facebook Live, whatever it may be, and suddenly there were no standards anymore. And and granted, I also think it's great. I don't think that journalism should, you know, you shouldn't have to be belonging to a specific news organisation or have a membership in XYZ to, to be a journalist. I think it's really important to have other voices. But it's become so noisy. It's become so noisy and... To the point where, uh, yeah, it's very hard for anybody to kind of know what they're seeing, or, or and nobody, nobody really has control over the narrative. So there are so many narratives that you just can't, you can't piece it together. And I, I really, I just hope that there's always going to be a place for that old school storytelling and a trusted place for that. And, and but but news organizations also need to invest in that to a degree too. Um, it can't just be a quick job or a cut and paste or what so-and-so says on Twitter. I think there needs to be a big investment in, in that on-the-ground reporting. And I think, too, what people also don't understand, the value in on-the-ground reporting, not only in getting the, that full picture and the dynamics of what's happening, is that you retain those relationships, at least in my case. Every day mm-hmm. I'm on a Signal or a WhatsApp or a Facebook Messenger and, and I'm sort of still in touch with, with my sources, from all different walks of life and all different countries and, and they're filling me in on things and, and I'm able to engage with them in a different way. So you carry those with you even in times when you're not on the ground, but you need, really need to have some of that ground experience in order to, to establish those relationships and, and kind of just understand the dynamics, the little innuendos that you just can never pick up from an ivory tower.
0: Uh, and, yeah, and- one thing I, I could say uh, is, and, and Holly and I are, are definitely closer in age, I think our generation gets a lot of shit from the older generation. But the one thing <laughs> what, I think- What are you saying? What do you saying? And Chris is giving me the middle finger. But the, the one thing I could say that I will credit uh, our generation, millennials, whatever, uh, you know, they call us, even though I think millennials is a weird word. Because I think if That's you weird. experience 9-11, right, it's a little different than people who were born- yeah. In like 2000, but the point being, for I, I've just noticed from my own experience, people in our age bracket are very good. I think at cross referencing news articles from different sources and getting to the truth. And I do always see that it's the boomers that fall for the fake news a lot of time. Not that Chris is a boomer. He's oh, right. totally He's younger than boomer. Uh, but it that, is the people in like my mom and dad's age range who will see something and they have to ask me, "Is this real?" Well, yeah. I don't know. Google it. See if oh, it's being reported okay. on by different independent sources. There should never be I always think it's bad when I hear people, uh, and it is people online say, I only trust Fox or OAN or that. There's untrustworthy people at all of those organizations. There's a few good people at all of them. Uh, you know, do your research. Don't don't trust any one source.
3: Yeah, no, you need to do your research and and just yeah, be careful of those obscure blogs. <laughs> <laughs> be careful of them. You know, there's so many of them, and I don't know where they come from. But just be careful.
1: Well, that's where I guess me, I'm what I'm an Xer, right? Is that what I am, Gen Gen X? I'm almost, fit. X. I think so. Fit. And I, I do. I I still love, and I think my service also and me de- being deployed as well. I still love. Hey, were they there? If they weren't there, I don't want to freaking hear it. I don't want to know it, and that's why. I, I always wanted to hear what Holly had to say, even when I was going over there. Hey, right? what are you seeing? Are we talk about something? Because it would help me when I would go over there. Like, okay, well, she said this was happening. I'm going to be on Barzani's compound. Um, I better keep my wits about me, or something to that effect. But so when I came back, it 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 was reporters like Holly or or the the embedded reporters that we had early days of Iraq that yeah, I would look for those names if they were there and they were in country. Then okay, I'm getting the right news if they weren't right. and again i have got i've had to learn from e the other way too i've had to because i've got i can't just yeah. go that right because people lie on the ground as well but generally right. generally generally you find that it's true but it, it's tough because if they weren't there yeah. I, it's hard for me to take them at face value i, I was like no you weren't there I, I'm, and
3: I'm what there. i found to be you know what i found to be problematic i guess is the right word and, and i'll relate this back to you to chris is I found that you know even Amer- when we when we send over our troops there that they're not allowed to step over that line outside that wire and they're not for me like they're not getting the that full picture and that is problematic to me no, you're you know, right. when US you know and and a lot of these changes there was big changes that actually happened after Benghazi so things got really locked down after I that and That's that our was hurting. across the world yeah and I found that you know in Afghanistan I would you know I'd go to the uh, what was the mission there the uh, resolute support right in Kabul, and I talked to the, you know these soldiers and things who'd, who'd been you know spent a year or whatever there, and they would, and I would sort of ask some questions about you know opposition or or people that weren't in power or who was kind of coming in, and I, I just started to get this sense that the only train of information that was sort of coming in a lot of the time. Uh, Was from those who were vetted and approved by the U.S. military, but that was you know just that one train of information. But if you go out on the street in Kabul and talk to the the guy who owns that restaurant down the corner, he's going to have a very different opinion of what is wrong with his country. And the same thing in Iraq. You know, I I you know, I felt you know it it was it's difficult. I'm sure it's extremely frustrating for for the men and women too in uniform who want to go out and be with the people and as much as they can and and weren't able to do that. And I think that's, in my opinion, is, is a big way that we're not getting the uh, sort of a, a full picture, even from that, that policy. When you're, when you're
1: in country. Yeah. I, I was very lucky when I was with OGA that we could go wherever we wanted. I would, and I saw the difference for me going state department where we're going in and we're going in as, Americans, the baddest boys in the block, and and we have this way. And then we, when it was starting to live within the in the culture, live within the in the city, going out by yourself, going out. You did. Yeah, you're right. I, I completely agree with you. I started to yeah. see things differently. And yeah. wait a second. And be, being immersed in the culture, um, and it made a heck of a lot of difference. So yeah, you're no. I, I completely agree with you. I and that's
2: where
3: that you too. get the trove of information from. Yes. You know, it, it's government and, and officials are going to tell you a lot of things and, and valuable things, but it's the people on the ground. It's the way, you know, and, and being a woman is actually a huge advantage because I have access to a hundred percent of the population. So I can still, you know, I'm sort of a third gender, so I can still go talk to them. <laughs> and they don't expect me to act the way that they would expect. Yes. A long long. Yep. But. I'm also then able to go and sit with the women as well. So you have this amazing accent and these women are just the troves of information. They just think they'll tell you a lot of things that the men will never tell you. So, and it's that just very raw on the ground uh, sort of experience is where I've been able to really piece the dynamics together and get a lot of the information and the stories that I need that I would just never get from a government official uh, that was spinning an agenda to, to be a certain way. And it's so, it's yeah, that's, that's so crucial to me to, to, to have, to be able to access that. And again, it goes down to the rules thing. I think it's probably why I became a journalist. Cause I, I don't have to abide by too many rules.
1: <laughs> and did you, did you say, and that's the terrible that you did say, and I, I heard the same as well. I went to Yemen after Benghazi and, and we were still yeah. able to move around quite a bit until, yeah. until, Honestly, we screwed that place up. Too. I was there when when that, when that we cut yeah. around there as well. Uh, but is it that bad? Is oh, it my bad? God. I
3: think, I think Yemen is just, yeah, it's a horrific place. It's the sort of place you go to where there just doesn't, isn't yeah. anything. There's, There's nothing. are like, how is this? This isn't even a camp. Like, what is this? And – yeah, horrific. And it, you know every third person is missing a limb, including children. Yeah. Um, the, the level of starvation yeah. is horrific. And it's just baffling because you you start to just think, well, what are what are we doing? I don't understand how nobody can help these people. And, I don't understand how a baby is starving right now. You know, what
1: are we doing? And in two thousand and thirteen, the cities is we were in Aden, and we were in Saddam. We were so it was still thriving. In fact, I I had my favorite coffee shop in Sana'a that I go to and get coffee and art studio. And, and, and it did yeah. it, with within, within, within six months, it was like, uh, end of 2013. It's, it turned into that. And again, that's what, that's what we did. That's what we did. Yeah. Trying to create democracy. And that's my opinion. It's all my opinion. You may have different imprint, but that's what we did trying to create democracy in a country and again we we had our party there and then we left it for them to clean up and and i got, there was a kentucky fried chicken downtown a real kentucky fried in Sana'a. i mean that's how wonderful that place really was. i mean yeah. you you had the outskirts the cities, even you have the outskirts but now the whole place is just you're right it's it's like a ghost country with just yeah. with just the maimed and the and the injured everywhere it's 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 terrible yeah.
3: Yeah. and how much of it i think really so much of it comes down to to passion and I know in my time in Yemen um I, I would see the difference between the Houthis who who sort of had this bigger yep. overarching picture that they were very passionate about and it's I think it's the reason they've been able to hold on to Sanaa and other places is because they just have this overarching passion for their their group and their tribe and their belief system and I'd also go out with the sort of the Yemeni soldiers who um just never had that, to me, never had that same sense of sort of passion and wanting to fight for their country. They were just happy as long as they could afford their cot and, you know, pay the, the you know, get a little bit of a salary. There wasn't this overarching, we're going to go out and fight for Yemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was a big thing that, you know, the Kurds definitely have that. They, they, they yeah, proposed over religion over other things, and I think that was a problem with the Iraqi army, in the beginning. And I, and I seen some really positive changes in them as well, but in the beginning, did they really want to fight for Iraq? Was it the Iraq Mm -hmm. that they cared enough about or did they just need to feed their family? So Mm -hmm. I always think that makes such a big difference when, um, you know, when you meet these militias, all the armies and and their, their passion is, is driven by something that's a, a big purpose. And then on the other side, if, if, passion and the purpose isn't there, they're just never going to succeed. And no matter how much training the United States or any other country can give them, support them, weapons or whatever, if it's not there, it's not there. And that's just the the missing the missing piece to having any kind of victory.
1: That's love of country. That's how we are too the patriotism. You love your country, then you're going to your country. If you don't, you're not. You're just going to collect all the cool gear that you can and collect the paycheck and and go home. No, you're right. You're right. But
3: you're going to sell that gear on the black market too
1: i saw i saw a lot of stuff on the black they had a blackwater store i think was it when was ah. it kurdistan in erbil they
3: had a oh, black kurdistan has every every knockoff you can imagine at every bazaar they have every 511 piece you can yes. like just every <laughs> piece you can find you know and they'll sew they'll sew patches onto everything they'll sew yep. american flags onto everything that's like kind um, of their their emma um, yeah
1: but, but, I, I know That's we're getting great. towards the end, but uh, Ian, I know you we, we probably got to wrap up here in a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, well, I, I just wanted to ask, I mean, when people pick up only cry for the living, which is out this Thursday uh, for the people listening, I mean, what's the main thing you want them to get out of this book that, that they probably are not getting elsewhere.
3: I just want people to have that really sort of human level understanding. So the book goes from 2014 through to 2018. And it's made up of memos, so you can, you know, it's chronological, but you can sort of pick and choose what what memos appeal to you. But what I want is people just to be able to really go below the surface, below the bang-bang, and just see how these people live and, and, and the impact. And it's a question that I ask over and over in the book, what is war, what is war, what is war, because it's so many different things to so many different people. And I want to just convey the... The human experience. I want to bring people into that country, into these, into that room, and just hopefully people walk away with a, a deeper understanding of what it is—not only to live through these things, but to survive. And at the end of the day, you know, there is just an incredible human resilience that exists through this. And I just love people, just to, to give people uh, maybe less of a two dimensional view of what war is and the sacrifices that are made and just understand the nuances a little deeper and the impact of, of war a little deeper from regardless of whatever your political uh, persuasions are, um, whatever actions are taken there has, has an impact Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. And I think that that is the important thing for people to really understand is, is what happens when we go and what happens if we don't go.
0: Uh, that's awesome i'm i'm excited for people to pick this up and uh, you know what i have to ask you something completely unrelated (laughs) off of this because i promised that i would uh i learned from your instagram you were a fellow huge motley crew fan.
2: (laughs) Oh
3: yeah i used to definitely um actually yeah and 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 uh i yeah i love him growing up my dad always listened so i always had a bunch of of uh of t-shirts and back in my la day i actually did one of their reunion tours i went on tour with them in vegas I, wait which year was this that. what year was that. this and i'm trying to remember it was the opening of the hard rock hotel that they uh so that big, this baby? was the
0: reunion they did yeah when they reunited again in like 2005
3: yeah i want to say it slightly after that so maybe 2009
0: Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: So I, um, yeah. So I, I did that. So that was, you got
0: that. to hang out with them on the tour, everything.
3: Yeah. I got to hang out with them. You, ha- you
0: have to have some awesome Molly Cruz story. Oh. You have to. Uh,
3: yeah. you know, they were all pretty, pretty sensible at that point in time. They're all, I uh, had those days behind them. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh... but I'm
0: sure it was a fun time just in general. <laughs> you
3: know, it was a fun time. How can you? How can you not have fun in Vegas? Here's the thing. A lot of people complain about Vegas. When I go to Vegas, you do Vegas right.
1: right. She does. You do Vegas right. She, so she does.
3: I, I did. I had a good time. So, yeah, they put on, like, an opening show thing, and, yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. And and, and my good friend, uh, Neil Strauss, who wrote their book, he, he gave yeah, me. Yeah,
0: great, great book, great book.
3: Yeah, he was also extremely supportive through this book and gave me a great endorsement too. But, yeah, that is a great book. Of all the music memoirs, I think that one has to be right up there with with one of the best. If, if you haven't read it, read it after, only cry. It'll- <laughs> yeah,
0: it, it's the wildest, and, you know, it could never have been put out now. No. I mean, it is just way too debaucherous, like, after the whole Me Too movement. I mean, there's, yeah. there's crazy stories in that book. It's one of the best like, – If you just want to read rock and roll debauchery, it is a great book. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying model your life after any of this, but it's an interesting read for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And the uh, I was making a friend the other day watch the Girls, Girls, Girls music video because they'd never seen it. Um, and it's so great. Isn't that a classic? And hair and yes, yeah, totally.
0: Did you ever see? So you ever watch? you probably haven't, but th- there's a DVD of the Motley Crue video hits, and they do some commentary on it for each of the music videos. It, yeah. So this is, I thought, was pretty interesting about that video. Nikki Six and Tommy Lee say that they knew MTV was going to give them some pushback for that video at the time, because they said at, nowadays that would be tame, but at that yeah. time it was like over the top. And they said what they purposely did on the DVD, there's an uncensored version, you know, and it's girls topless, and it's, it's way more over the top. And he, they said, this is Nikki Six, kind of in his genius, said they submitted that version to MTV knowing that they were going to say right. we can't play this on TV. And then he's like, we gave them the censored, air ver- fingers quote, censored version, which is the one we intended for in the first place. And they were like, oh, guys, this is much better. And he's like, we knew that's what would happen. And he's like, but if we initially gave them that first one, they probably would have said we can't play this. So that that was his way of saying you're yeah. right. Here's, here's paper version. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, and I think Nikki Six is just such a like business genius in the way that he's run the whole band. And it's really his band. Um, I never got to see them in Vegas, but I did get to see Motley Crue a couple of times in Atlantic city and it was always just an an awesome time. I mean, they're just such a fun show and there, there actually is some valuable stuff in that yeah. book as well about kind of the cogs in the machine and, how they talk about how uh, with with every scene of music, yeah, especially when they put out Doctor Feelgood, for example, they were expected. Oh, they were done. They had their ten years or whatever, and they managed to go above and beyond that. And yeah. and you know they are a nostalgic '80s band, but they've yeah. somehow managed to still uh, gain popularity. Went with, with whether it's you know the Dirt movie on Netflix, and now <laughs> that this reunion. So with-
3: that really should have been a series. I think they left so much of the good stuff out of that yeah, yeah. If, if you're a fan it's great but if you don't know anything about them you are probably kind of like what the hell is this
0: but, I, I was always disappointed that i was like oh i didn't go to that last show i was at the last tour but I didn't go to the last show and then sure enough you know there was no last show because they reunite if if we're ever able to go see a stadium show again you know and they end up touring with def leopard which was supposed to happen yeah but, I, I had to ask you about it just because. Will we ever go to a, a huge nerd? Will
3: we ever go to a concert again? That's the thing.
0: I, well, here's the thing: in Florida, we like you.
3: Everything's pretty much
0: open. I love. Florida. I, know. I don't know about I the rest of the Florida. country.
3: I love Florida too. Yeah, it is open. It's pretty great.
0: I, I mean, they, CPAC is going on there right <laughs> now, so. And I'm yeah. sure you're
1: you're not even sad that you're missing any of that crap at all.
3: <laughs> I I'm really yeah yeah I'm really. Glad to be, yeah, taking a little bit of a backseat to politics at the moment. It's good for my health.
0: Well, you're, you're <laughs> yeah, I oh, fully agree. Uh, you know, one last question, if you don't mind. Um, you know, the the forward for the book was done by Navy SEAL Jocko Willink. You were just on his show, which I know did really well. Uh, how did that relationship happen?
3: So Jocko is actually um, publishing. I, I, so my my book is published under under Jocko, yeah. umbrella. So yeah, we uh, I've I've known, you know, sort of connected with him. A while ago on a lot of his projects, and yeah, it was just it was sort of a right fit um, in terms mm-hmm. of of incorporating some of that kind of military aspect, and then I'm hof- hopefully bringing a little bit of the human sensibility, yeah, to the to the podcast <laughs> and a little bit of the. <laughs> The feminine, yes, I, I cried in this particular situation um, approach to it. So, yeah, it was just it was a it was a good fit for for this,
1: yeah. uh, for this project. So it's well, been great. Well, you're respected in, in the community, you know, by Jocko, by myself, by and many others that because you've been around. You've been you, we all know who you are and we knew you before the before the book. And we know you're a tremendous writer. You've made me sound good in interviews where I'm like, holy shit, I'm glad Holly wrote that because I.
2: That's not that's,
1: that's that's not how it came out of my mouth, but it sounded a hell of a lot better how she wrote it. So, no, uh, uh, well, amazing. And thank, I'm,
3: I'm thank you, you know, for your support over the years. I know we've been friends a long time, but it's really it's been it's been valuable getting your opinion on things, getting your assessment on things, and always, you know, you're extremely honest human being. <laughs> so I always know you're you're telling me telling me exactly how it is. And I, I, I do I really. I,
1: no, you we're you're my best friends so whatever you know whatever you need and thank you for being on the show. We got to have her on again because we still got oh, to talk bullet. about the bullet shortage with her because I know she had, we've had opinions on it. Actually, one of the last stories you wrote with was, was the bullet and toilet paper shortage that we wrote about three, four years ago and have her back yeah. on with that. And then, and then I do, I want to hear more about the Motley Crue stuff. So it's funny you're saying three back.
0: years ago, I was like, bullet. Oh, was, it two, was it two shortage. years ago? Two years ago? Last no, year. I was just going to say bullet and toilet, toilet paper shortage. Toilet. I would think you're talking about America yeah, right now. Right?
1: Well, the, the toilet paper's yeah. coming back. It's still the bullets. It was, it was, but it was, was it two years ago? So I'm You're talking about in America? Yeah, yeah. When when, when the toilet paper shortage first happened. We don't have a toilet paper yeah, like
0: shortage like, anymore. One year ago, one year. One ago. year? See, that's what happens. Yeah. Your time turn, frame. I was. I was like, are we talking about Iraq I, or are we I, talking I, about America? I don't watch. I don't watch
1: any news anymore. I'm never on it, it's and just I just know, I'm here so. Here I'm, you. I'm, I'm so. So yeah, it does. It does seem like a long time ago. It's right. That's what you're here for, Ian, to correct me. And we'll when do I do a range
3: day, that's what we'll do. We'll do a range day in do Florida. a range day. Yes,
1: a range day in Florida. You got it.
0: Yeah. Deal. deal. I would go for that. Deal. That's awesome. So uh, once again, at Holly S. McKay on Twitter and Instagram, that's H-O-L-L-I-E-S-M-C-K-A-Y. Uh, and then also the organization you work for, uh, Burnt Children Relief, HelpBCRF.com, yeah. in which you're the outreach director. And uh, March 4th, the book comes out, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. And honestly you don't really need our help selling it because like I said number 1 in the category right now awesome. which is a huge huge accomplishment
3: for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh,
0: thanks Holly. And we'll talk to you. Holly.
1: You let me know if you need anything and we'll get we'll keep we'll keep pushing the book for you, okay? And I'll get some more stuff up on my Instagram as well.
3: I love it. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Great having Holly McKay on. Uh, guys, pick up the book really appreciate her uh, joining us and, and being very candid and it's great to see real journalists out there uh, on the ground boots on the ground doing what they should be doing so uh, I, I appreciate you making that introduction Chris
1: no she and she's been friend forever uh, since uh, since well since when I started to go on the news what was that five six it's been a long time Oh, geez longer than that um, but she was one of the ones that I I, I actually trusted and because she never ever put her words into what I was saying. She, she'd make me sound bad. So my grammar was correct, but she was one of the ones where it was, if I said it and I meant it this way, then that's how she wrote it down. And, and then I've also, you know, you do have respect for a journalist that's going over these places and you know how dangerous they are because I'm going there and she's going there really on her own with little security. And, and that's, that's 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 not that's not a safe thing to do so you get some respect for that which i did and then she's just a very very nice human being she's like yeah and, and I, I don't want her to take this the wrong way but um she's like hanging out you know when you're hanging out with, it's like hanging out with one of the dudes it is she's like yeah what's it like let's go and and she could she's she can drink drink and smoke guys under the table so um no, uh, really good friend and, and a lot of respect for. Her. And any success that she's getting, which she's going to get plenty of success with the book. She's already has a success, had a successful career with the, in journalism with the, with Fox. Um, she's it's well deserved because she's worked her ass off for it and she's put herself in harm's way to to gain uh, the knowledge that she has, which is respectful in itself. So, congratulations to her and thanks for letting her letting her come on the show, course, Of course, I of course
0: it. at any time. Uh, so yeah that, that's about it guys um, as always support the sponsors the links to those are all in the description they help us uh, do what we do if there's any listening platform that you didn't see us on it was because we switched the RSS feed from uh, from SoundCloud to Simplecast so I had a few people say that they didn't see it on iHeartRadio anymore I think all of that is fixed now if you have any issues though uh, shoot shoot us an email battlelinepodcast at gmail.com and I think that's it thanks guys
2: That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American straight talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never quit.